Blog Talk Radio. Liberal Fix is brought to you by Blue Push Media, news important to progressives and liberals across America. Good evening and welcome to this Friday night edition of Liberal Fix Radio. Um, my, my name is Keith Breckis. I'll be the host tonight. Uh, it is Friday, May 20th, and I'm very excited to announce our guest tonight will be Gene Trounstein, who is the author of Boy with a Knife, A Story of Murder, Remorse, and a Prisoner's Fight for Justice. Um, how are you doing this evening, Gene? Good. Thank you, Keith. Good, and great to have you on here. And so really excited about this. Um, and uh, I guess uh, maybe for our listeners, uh, just if you could maybe give them a background on what the book is about and why you wrote it and, and um, maybe start there. Sure. Um, so thanks for having me. And um, I, I guess I'll begin with the fact that 200,000 people every year are sentenced as children, as sentenced as children to adult prisons in this country, it was 250,000 when I started this project. The crime has, uh, the rate's gone down, but we still send many too many children to adult prisons. And that fact, and the fact that 10,000 kids a day actually are in an adult prison or jail, and the fact that I met Carter Reed. Um, a young man who was sentenced as a as a child to an adult prison are both sort of simultaneous things that interested me and fascinated me and congealed in terms of this book, Boy with a Knife, which is is really my take on why we should not treat our children as adults and why we have come far in many other ways in our system, but we really are behind in terms of how we treat kids. Sure, absolutely. And I know um, when you first got a letter from Carter Kane Reed, who the book um, follows and and who um, obviously the story is about many more things than one individual, but he's one of the people that you follow to sort of to sort of highlight the the problem that you speak of. Well, I know when you first got a letter from Carter Kane Reed, you weren't exactly excited. Um, why did he choose you, and what was it about his letter that drew you in, and how did you ultimately decide that you were able to tell his story? Well, I wasn't excited because it was a letter from someone, he was actually at the time 31, who was writing for help. Um, I, for parole, I had taught women in prison for 10 years. I'm a professor at a community college in Massachusetts, and I um, have a lot of experience in the criminal justice system, but mostly it was working with women. And I had stereotypes when I got this letter. I thought, just like my students, um, uh, all men in prison are dangerous. Um, People are you know, ultimately, I should be suspicious of anybody writing me from a prison. Um, Carter had committed a horrible crime. He'd killed someone when he was 16. And I think that, I mean, it didn't just scare me. It just sort of pushed me away. And yet, 
what was an interesting is that the letter was so intelligent. He was so well-spoken. I thought, you know, this was an amazing disjuncture between the person on the page and what, of course, I ran to the internet to find out all the things he had was accused of doing and was found guilty of doing in terms of murdering someone. And I mean, he was portrayed as a sort of um, a heartless young man laughing at the murder and, you know, all sorts of other things were spread across the news. So this juncture interested me. And I took that first letter to my class and I asked my students what they thought, what, what do they think I should do? And they wanted to know more about him. So that's really why I wrote the first letter. And then gradually over time, uh, I mean, I didn't plan to continue to correspond with him, and I, I mean, I was, you know, I was hesitant, I was suspicious, I didn't trust him, and probably that was a smart thing. I mean, who knows what somebody is, you know, what the truth is in certain situations, but I I found out that Carter was much more indicative of most kids who are put behind bars when they're young and who do commit awful crimes um he is someone who wanted to change himself he wanted to uh understand why he did what he did and he wanted to make amends he felt great remorse and he wanted a meaningful life and that that also interested me so that's what drew me in yeah, and I know his case came at a monumental time for the justice system in the United States. Um, what was the mandatory sentence for juveniles convicted of murder back in 1993, and how was that law justified, and when did it finally change? Well, let me just start, first of all, in answering your question sure. with the climate of the times, which was really... Um, you know, we've heard this term super predator now. Uh, it's come back into our vocabulary in this year as there were some moments when different people used it in terms of I'm not a super predator. Someone accused Hillary Clinton of something talking about super predators and all the things that she said when she in the 1990s about them. And it's been it's been an interesting moment because that word, which was really a coded word for young black men, was also a word used to describe the fear that people had, That, and it really was a, a fear because it didn't happen, that young men would kill, would murder. And at that time, kids, I mean, it changed. It varied from state to state, but you could be sentenced to prison for life if you were a child. However, many states um, had not really begun necessarily to have the kind of harsh punishment that we now have as a result of this super predator time. And as a result of that, states changed penalties so that kids would go to prison and the ones who were going to get parole would get them, um, you know, maybe after X number of years. Um, the, the penalties became harsher. Kids could go to adult prisons instead of being treated in the juvenile in juvenile facilities, which is 
in many ways much more logical because you put kids with people their own age, you give them education, you give them opportunities, you help them change, which now we know kids are capable of. But at the time, we didn't. We didn't have the brain research we have. We didn't have the understandings we have. And so the the kinds of penalties we had changed with the super predator era. Now, in terms of what you were asking about life without parole, that went out in 2012 when Miller versus Alabama was passed. And now we no longer can send kids to prison without parole. That is what the prosecutor wanted with Carter. He wanted life without parole. He did not get it. He got second-degree murder in our state instead of first-degree. But you could ask for that, life without parole. I see. And and I know um, uh, Carter's trial occurred about 20 years before Miller versus Alabama. And then that was a Supreme Court decision, if I understand correctly. Could you tell us a little bit more about that decision and how sure. it changed what happens to juveniles who are committed to murder? Well, there were a series of decisions before that one. I mean, that was that was a particularly major one. But there was also a decision where kids were were all of a sudden we didn't have um, <clears throat> we couldn't send kids to the death for death penalty. That happened. I think it was as late as two thousand and five. Um, don't quote me, but it was late. And I mean, compared to other countries. So that was one thing. And then we started recognizing in our Supreme Court decisions the ability of kids to change the research that was happening. And that played out till we get to Miller v. Alabama. And Miller v. Alabama, basically, it wasn't a unanimous decision, but it was a Supreme Court decision that said kids are capable of change, even kids who commit heinous crimes are capable of change, and we need to give them a chance for parole. So this threw the country in an uproar because that meant that each state had to individually deal with what they would do after Miller v. Alabama. So some states, um, like in Massachusetts, we had we had our, at the time a second degree with second degree murder you would be able to get eligibility for parole in 15 years so with first degree murder how could that be massachusetts legislators said so we have to make it more some states went so far as to say that okay you can be eligible for parole but not till after 50 years that's one thing that Missouri wants to pass right now. Well, that's not exactly what some people would say is in the spirit of Miller v. Alabama, which is that kids deserve the chance to change because they are capable of change. And that capability came from understanding of brain research, brain size, and all of the differences between children and adults, which we now know are really true. We, I mean, anybody who's a parent probably suspected it, but we know it scientifically. That and so that's where really how the Supreme Court began to look at science and use it in its its decisions and that's been major for the justice system in terms of how we're dealing with kids. Yeah, and I, I know uh, one thing, um the United States is kind of uh interesting I guess in the way it treats um uh children or child offenders. Um 
Uh, unlike 194 other countries, the U.S., along with uh, Somalia and South Sudan, to name a couple others, has not ratified the Convention on the Rights of the Child. Um, what rights does this international treaty provide that we don't honor here? Well, for one thing, um, not allowing solitary confinement. Um, we're starting to to deal with that. Not sending kids to adult prisons um, in many cases. Um, but solitary is really important because, I mean, a lot of people, a lot of countries forbid that because they consider it cruel and unusual punishment for kids. Um, we still allow solitary. And if it's not sol- and, and that again, it varies from state to state. Um, sometimes people will say we're giving, putting a kid in solitary for his own protection because if we put him in a prison with adults, he's not allowed to be near adults because of a recent Rape Elimination Act, which says that kids have to be within a certain distance from an adult. However, if you're a 16-year-old and you're put in solitary, that's frightening. We've, you know, we've seen cases, Rikers to, to name one, where, you know, children have uh, been so terrified, committed suicide, um, gone, you know, it developed different kinds of mental disorders. And so the right to be protected, the right to be treated fairly, the right to face your accuser, the right, all the rights that you have um, in a courtroom, but I'd say particularly the rights of being handled differently because of your, you know, the specialized situation of your age. Sure. And I know um, for the case of, uh, I guess, uh, Carter Reed's situation and stuff, um, can you maybe tell us a little about what happened on the day that um, Carter stabbed uh, Jason Robinson, what was going through his his mind at that time or what, what was going on mm-hmm. with that? Um, it's interesting that you asked that question because he he said on a radio show that we did something that really took me took me back, Keith, in, in a sort of interesting way. Um, he said it's really hard for him to describe what was going through his mind because it was his whole. It took a whole lifetime for him to get where he was at that moment. You know, he had a father who went to prison when he was, um, I think it was 14, 14, two years before the murder. He was poor. He grew up bullied and bullying. He, His father had a cocaine habit, so they had no money one minute and money the next. Uh, he was a you know, a fairly good student, and yet he was also totally subject to peer group and the kind of peer pressure that kids are subject to. So he got involved with a couple of kids who were in a situation where they wanted to get back at other kids. So he got to this moment in time because of all of that. The particular situation of the developed was you know so so honestly kid like one group says you can't call my mom that name and the other group says you can't do this and we're going to have a fight and blah 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 you know west side story i mean we're going to get together it's not even gangs but one group against another and this was again in 1993 they go into a school to finish a fight now 
what you know what is in a mind of somebody who is rational going into a school to finish a fight so they go into this school they're they have no clue the teachers start to come um they're outside this classroom door they're going to get back at this kid who's insulted their friend um they go in the classroom the kid's not there because he was sent to the principal's office but another kid as part of the group is there jason robinson he's the carter's cohort gator is wielding a bat carter has a billy club and in his pocket a knife that he has carried every single day of his life that he carried because he felt he needed protection and at the moment that Jason Robinson runs by him, someone has already taken the billy club from him. Gator's already been subdued to the floor, but Jason Robinson is running. Carter pulls out his knife and he stabs him. And he thinks in his mind that he is going to be a hero, that he is going to be a hero because he has stood up for his friends. And he thinks that all the way until he finds out hours later when he's arrested and he's taken down to a cell and someone comes in and says, you know, the boy you stabbed has died. And at that point, Carter's like, oh my God. Because he did not connect stabbing with killing. That, to me, is the sign of a child. So that's what happened that day. Um, But it was a buildup of many, many, I guess you would say, forces in his life as it would be for anyone but particularly for kids who act so impulsively and without, you know, really knowing what on earth they're getting themselves into. Yeah, and I know you alluded to this earlier, and that time period, the way sort of meteor portrayals were with things like, um, you know, the super predator concept or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so after the murder, um, the media began painting a picture of Carter and his friend Gator as remorseless killers, um, reporting that they were pleased that Jason Robinson had died and were joyful after the incident. Um, what really happened after the murder, and how did the stories uh, spiral out of control? Well, I mean, that's that's an interesting question. It's hard for me to answer that. I mean, I, I can only tell you what was in the paper and what I read, the trial transcripts, and what I have come to see that seems to happen when you have someone who has committed a brutal, horrible crime, the at least in this country, we seem to want vengeance. Um, we don't seem to look at it like there is this incredible harm that has been created, and now we have to heal the harm. It's harm in a community, harm in a child, harm in a child's family, harm in the victim, harm in the victim's family. The harm is enormous, but there, what happens is there's this immediate, this person has done this horrible thing, and news stories, and blame, and get back, and anger. Not that there isn't justifiable fury if your child is killed, but the response to it is often to make it worse by headlines that are things like boys joyful after murder, um, 
you know, Carter stood stonily in the in the courtroom. Um, Twenty-seven drops of blood lined the corridor where Jason Robinson was was his body was brought up the hallway. Or it, it's it's like let's make it into something that we can all take a side on. We can all see how, you know, vicious, violent it is. And that's what happened. Um, So Carter became a monster in the eyes of the community where he had committed the crime. And interestingly enough, to this day, he is still a monster since my book came out. Um, It was very hard for the family, which I understand. But the kind of hard was also repeating the same things that were in the press that day, the same kinds of things that were said about Carter, not an interest that this person might want to make up for what he did and might want to have changed his life. So, and, and I think this is not unique to one case. I think this happens all over the country. Um, We see kids who do horrible things vilified. And it's much easier for us to talk about people who commit nonviolent offenses than it is for us to talk about people who commit violent offenses for exactly this reason. So if we lived in other countries, we would have concerns that were what, you know, what, what do we want? our society to be like? Do we want him to be a citizen again? Do we want him to have a restorative justice program? Do we want something where people get to make up for things that they've done and come back to our world? But that doesn't seem to be how we function. So that's a long answer, Keith. But <laughs> No, yeah, I agree with yeah, that. Yeah, I understand. it. Yeah, and I do see how, I mean, in the media and sort of in our mindsets in this country, I think there's a a real pull to oversimplify criminal cases. Like one of the things uh, um, when I took sociology classes is often they would point out that the sort of characteristics of homicide victims and homicide perpetrators were very similar. So often cases, uh, you know, often in urban settings or other things, it's a matter of um, the person who was the victim or the person or the perpetrator weren't all that much different, but what tends to happen after somebody is killed is is that the the murder victim is sort of um, given a virtuous status, like like their innocence is emphasized even if perhaps the victim has a, a long criminal history that isn't mentioned. And the perpetrator, regardless of their history, is all of a sudden created as a monster. And and not that they don't sometimes commit monstrous acts or, or do things, but, but the reality of the actual um, situation is a lot more complex than that. And I think listeners might be familiar, you know, on a scale of, like, I know when I was in high school, we sometimes got into physical fights that got out of control. And at the end of it, it was kind of like, you know, how did this all happen? You know, and of course, luckily, we didn't have lethal weapons and, you know, people just ended up with a bloody nose or something. But it was it was kind of like there wasn't really a good guy and a bad guy in this situation that uh-huh. escalated out of control because uh-huh. teenage kids who maybe feel it's light or a certain 
you know, things happen and they kind of spiral out of control. But, but uh, I think, thank goodness in the case, you know, where we were, you know, usually it wasn't a super serious thing, but it's easy to see how it could be if there were weapons involved or if there was a longer mm-hmm. history predating the event. And so um, just, and also in, with other criminal cases um, in the same time period of Carter's crime, what effect did those cases have on public sentiment surrounding his crime, and did that have an impact on his sentence as well? I really can't say that it had an impact on his sentence because, again, you know, I don't know. I wasn't there. I, I, sure. I can't really say that. I do know that we tend to legislate anecdotally. Um, I think that's an interesting statement of one of the judges in that. Yeah, yeah, one of the judges in Massachusetts said that, and um, so that when there is, you know, that in Massachusetts, and I think many states are like this, we we've gone through different permutations about um, how we deal with the sentence for someone. So that it used to be in Carter's day, a child had to be transferred from a juvenile court to an adult court and that was if he'd committed murder for example or he was accused of murder the prosecutor could ask for him to be tried in the um, adult court and there would be a series of hearings for the judge to determine if that was so Um, then the laws changed so there was a presumption so that in, in the in Massachusetts, as in many other states, you are now automatically sent to the adult court if you are accused of murder. At age in Massachusetts, it's 14. In some states, it's as young as 12. So that's what happened with you know the super predator thing. So um, my point is that kinds of laws got created when someone did something that was horrible, then, you know, and everybody goes, we have to change the law. We ha- we can't have this happen. You know, that's the response. We have to change the law. We have to figure out some way not to have this happen. But that isn't really necessarily the best way to not have it happen. I mean, there are a lot of other things that could involve, you know, support in the community, support for kids, helping them in school, you know, making sure their, you know, things are taken care of that don't, so so these kinds of violence between groups don't escalate and don't happen. And, you know, there's so many things that are missing along the way before you get to creating a law. Um, so I think now a lot of juvenile organizations know this, and they're really trying to have support in the community. You know, groups are forming where kids are, you know, getting help from counselors and after school they're doing, in, in, they're engaged in all sorts of, you know, productive things, giving back to the community. Lots of different cities are working this way so that, um, you know, so that really we can help kids along the way before they get to a point where they would commit a crime. And that's really what's ideal as opposed to, Hey, this is a terrible thing you did. Now let's put you in prison. 
I mean, prison right. should be avoided. <laughs> it should be the last resort. It shouldn't be, you know, the law for resorting to law shouldn't be the first resort to help change something, I think. Absolutely. And so, I mean, I think what you're talking about is that there's ways that rather than <laughs> retaliation, maybe pre- preventative things, for example, in yeah. Carter's case, um, what things might have uh, been able to have changed in his life or in his social universe to prevent him from eventually committing the murder and, and or maybe more generally, and I know these are tough questions and there may be no be easy answer, but how can we be more proactive in reducing violence, uh, for example, among young people in the United States? Well, well, first of all, some of it's economic. I mean, some of it is just sure. plain economic. Yeah. You know, that if you have somebody who's going to school and can't afford lunch every single day, um, you already, you've got a big problem for that kid. Um, if you have somebody whose father's a cocaine addict, you've got a problem. So the economics of, you know, the economics and the, you know, the way people live because they're poor, that that's a big thing. And we, we have to deal with um, the economics of crime, for sure. Um, because it's not just individualized, it's really systemic. It's, a, it's the kinds of things that happen are because of, you know, larger things. I mean, I haven't even mentioned that a child who is African-American is much worse off than a child who is white. In Massachusetts, um, our rates of imprisonment of black kids actually are nine times as much as white kids. That's that's horrible. That's that's unconscionable, really. And um, so we have that the problem of race and the problem of how to deal with the unjustness of what we do with people of color, too. So. I think when we want change, we have to look at, you know, sort of at the baseline. What's the school doing? Um, What kind of programs do we have for the school? What kind of programs do we have for the kids after school? Um, How are we helping the parents in the home? I mean, now we know if you have two parents who are working, you're going to have, you know, you're going to have a kid who, might need some support in some other way. So we understand this. We just have to figure out how to provide it. We have to have groups organized, um, places where kids can go, drop-in centers, activities, you know, obviously sports, and but lots of other activities too for kids to get together in healthy ways. So all those things could have helped Carter. Um, in addition, I think... You know, somebody probably should have said to Carter at some point, or maybe it's maybe even to all of the kids, they might have said, um, "Wait a minute, um, why don't we just all sit down and have a conversation here and let's work these things out? We don't want to, you know, let let's try another method other than a a fight." And you know, that's hard. I mean, that's not an easy thing to say because. If you're a parent, you don't always know those things are happening with your kids. You don't know the the fights are brewing. But I think we have to find those things out, and we have to figure out how to help kids through those kinds of 
crises in their life. They're real, usually, for a kid. They think it's, you know, very dramatic. But, you know, you know, I, I don't have answers. I just can see that we've got to figure out support rather than throwing somebody away. Sure, absolutely. And I know um, with sending juvenile offenders to adult prisons, there's definitely um, issues or problems with that. What are some of those dangers? And, uh, for example, what does the statistics say about juvenile offenders in, in adult prisons? Um, much less likely to succeed than juveniles who are housed with kids their own age. Um, studies have been done, I think it's almost twice as twice as much um, success rate if you're with kids your own age. And that's still not easy. It's, you know, we don't sure. have fantastic recidivism, uh, I mean, r- uh, helping to prevent recidivism. But the things that happen when you go to an adult prison, um, I'm, I alluded to a few of them before, but, you know, certainly... If you're in with adults, you're vul- more vulnerable, you're younger, um, you're often, you don't know the ropes, so you're a little less um, able to deal with things. Um, or other possibilities are you try to get tough so that you seem like you can deal with things. So you, you know, that's what Carter did. You get tough. You think, okay, I'll just, you know, handle it all and put on a facade until, you know, until you find out that that's not going to necessarily help you either. Um, but it, the fear of being beat up, the um, solitary, the um, vulnerability to more mental illness. Um, apparently kids have much more um, chance of, you know, developing different kinds of mental problems when they're in an adult prison just because of the difference in age and their fragility. Those are some of the things. I think also isolation is really a big one. Being away from your family when you're a kid, being away from everything you know, um, it's much more disconcerting, I think. Yeah, and I know, um, uh, well, we kind of mentioned earlier the media's role in, in, or in the way they portray Carter. Um, and even after 16 years after his crime, pundits um, still are pretty adamant, or many of them, in painting him as a monster. If you could say one thing to the media commentators about his uh, presumed release, uh, or, you know, what would you say? What would you tell them? Well, I think people need to tell stories, more positive stories about people, about kids, number one. Um, I think that often what gets our attention are the negative stories, the ones who fail, uh, the ones who commit crimes. The and the, So I think the positive, excuse me, telling the positive stories is really important. Um, yeah, I, I think... The other thing, I mean, you only asked me for one, but the other thing is seeing the face behind the crime. Um, That's majorly important Um, because 
the crime is one part of a person. It's not the whole person. And I think the media needs to do that. Yeah. Sure, I, I agree. I think that would, you know, <laughs> something that's lacking, and, and um, I'm not holding my breath, but I do think it would be important mm-hmm. for us to do that um, mm-hmm. for sure. Um, and bringing it back to politics, I guess, um, especially in this country where a lot of politics is sort of reduced to right-left arguments or, you know, these guys are tough on crime and this party's soft on it or whatever. Um, so during, uh, well, 47 people convicted of second-degree murder were paroled under um, Massachusetts Governor Mitt Romney, the Republican, when he was governor, um, compared to a lower number, uh, 32 under um, Governor Deval Patrick. And yet, of course, Deval Patrick's critics still call him soft on crime. Why is that? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I guess because he, well, that's a hard one for me. I think that he's a Democrat. He got a reputation as a liberal, and he was very liberal on certain issues. But he, I mean, he has a public face. He, who knows what he wants to do after, you know, since he's left Massachusetts. Nobody really wants to be, quote unquote, soft on crime. I mean, that's the saddest thing. I mean, finally we see Obama in his final term doing some things that that are, in my opinion, fantastic. Releasing people, clemency. Um, you know, he went to visit a prison. Um, He's had people come and talk at the White House, but we don't normally see that with a sitting president and and certainly not even necessarily with a governor because people want to be elected. They want to be in power. So they think that, you know, uh, being quote unquote tough and saying we're not going to have crime, we're not going to have this, we're not going to have that, is the way to go. Because, I mean, it is people's safety. People are afraid. They don't want to live in a dangerous world. But the problem is that it gets simplified and it gets into sound bites and it becomes something that really isn't the truth. That, no, it's not true that if, I mean, and I'm speaking sort of to the public when I say this, it's not true that if you... I mean, it, it, excuse me, I'll start over again. If you have a parole system, there are going to be mistakes in a parole system sure. if it's a human system. It's human. So there are going to be some mistakes. But if you say that we're going to not let people out because we're afraid that someone's going to recommit a crime, you then penalize all of the people who wouldn't commit crimes who you're not going to let out. So, you know, making that choice in my opinion, penalizes more people. I'm not saying that you want risks for you want to, you want to walk into a risk, but I think this is the problem. People don't they're not honest with with themselves or with and if they only if they want no risk, then no one will get out of prison. Right, and if and if you set yeah. the standard at such a level that even one person gets paroled and then goes on to commit a violent crime, and then you say, well, then we can't parole anybody. Well, I mean, that's, right. 
it, it's not a realistic standard. I mean, obviously, you can, politicians can exploit that, and I guess Massachusetts, you know, I mean, the, one of the most famous examples when I was coming of age was uh, when they ran, when they ran Willie Horton ads against Michael Dukakis mm-hmm. as if he personally mm-hmm. said, oh, yeah, I'm going to re- release Willie Horton to kill again. Well, that's now really what happened, but, but of course, that's sort of the way it got portrayed, like, oh, he's so soft on crime, he's going to let this guy go out and murder people, and, of course, the whole racial components of how that was, you know, portrayed and, and what fears it preyed upon um, mm-hmm. was really, mm-hmm. I, I think, one of the most um, m- most effective, but in my, my mind, one of the worst forms of sort of negative campaigning, and also because of that, then other Democratic governors or people would would crack down on crime because they don't want to be the next Michael Dukakis, and then who loses? You know, we do as a society or the people that are in jail for nonviolent offenses or for violent offenses that aren't aren't going to commit them again. You know, then nobody gets paroled, and we have you know things like free strikes and and all kinds of legislation that's involved to uh, designed to incarcerate people for longer and longer periods of time, and that's that we don't come out winning then. I mean, you know, so, okay, so, we, mm-hmm. you know, we might have prevented somebody somewhere from coming out and committing another crime, but at what cost, you know? Mm-hmm. And then right. uh, also even when people get out, um, for people that have been in jail or in prison and, and then they have a lifetime of parole or several years of parole to contend with afterwards, pretty easy to at that point to feel like the world is against you um so in your book could you mention what what some of the challenges for example that carter himself faced when he was released and Mm -hmm. things that most of us maybe don't ever have to think about that will always be in the back of his mind and people like him yeah i think re-entry is a very important and um sometimes overlooked issue Coming out in some ways is very frightening because if you can imagine all of a sudden, uh, even though you've heard about it, you know, everything is connected, number one, the way we are today, you know, cell phones, iPads, uh, you know, computers, you know, everything is in a connected world. And if you missed that, it's something to, you have to catch up to it. That's one thing the ways of communicating and getting information are so different. Learning all of this, its that's enormous for people. Um, having to deal with family is, is hard. It's, it's, it, it, you need family, you need support, but you've come out, you're in a different place, you're somewhat of an outsider, you're now part of things. That's major. Um, getting a job so many people don't hire uh people who come out of prison and if they do they're very low paying jobs so that's a big issue housing people don't always want someone who's committed a crime you know they can run background checks there's you know the box that you have to check in many situations in many states colleges education in Carter's case he went to community college and he got a 4.0 average. And then when he wanted to teach to be a tutor, the professors recommended that he be a tutor. He was not allowed to be a tutor at the school. 
And that kind of thing happens all the time where you just cut out. You, okay, you can't work with kids. You can do this, but you can, you kill someone, so you can't work with kids. It's almost like you pay for it, then you pay for it again, you pay for it again, and you pay for it again. And that's, that is what it is to live in this society for someone who gets out. Um, very rough. You're always the person who killed someone. Um, now, if you saw Carter on the street, you would never guess in a million years that he had killed someone. He looks like a college professor. He looks like a regular person. Um, but that's who he is, a part of him. You know, he did commit that murder, and that is still what everybody wants to talk to him about rather than about, wow, tell me how you bought a house, which he also did um, with his girlfriend. Tell me how you, you know, get up at at, uh, 3 in the morning to go to your job (laughs) and stay up until 10. No, people don't ask him about that. So it's hard. It's... um, it's always a process of integrating, reintegrating. I don't know if yeah, it stops, really. Yeah. Sure. And even some of the reforms that have come out, like, for example, there's now the ban the box legislation, which I think, you know, is a good thing, meaning that employers cannot ask, at least in the initial application, if, if the people applying for the job have committed a felony. However, since employers can conduct background checks, um, how useful really are measures like ban the box? Um, is it, you know, how effective or how how helpful are, are they for people trying to get back into the workforce for certain jobs? Well, you know, I think you get different opinions about that. Um, I think it's probably somewhat useful in some situations. At least you get an interview if there's no box there. But as soon as you get the interview people are going to ask you about your background. Um, Sure. And so you can get cut out there. Uh, In Carter's case, he got promoted, but he almost didn't get promoted because that's the point at which they were going to do a background check of him. They hadn't done it before, but he managed to get the job and in people so much that they wanted him at the job. But... You know, that's hard. That's a hard way to go. You have to... I don't know that ban the box is particularly, uh, by the way, not happening in every state. I think it's... In many states, there is no box, but there's still the box in a lot of different situations, college applications, um, maybe not all job applications, but um, different kinds of things. You, Whether there's a box or not, you're still... You know, you're still... Quizzed and queried about your background, and yeah, I don't know how much it helps, except to get you the interview. I guess that's the, the right. Thing Maybe you have at least a chance of <laughs> sort of uh, by getting the interview, you could still. <laughs> right. But yeah, I mean, I it's true that somewhere in the process it, that it's going to come up, and whether it's a background check before the interview or after, obviously there's a, you know, people many employers are going to see it as a red flag regardless of in the process. I mean, I think in a case where you've been working for a place long enough maybe to earn their trust, that when the promotion situation came around, maybe he was in a position where he had built up so much um, trust or or, um, 
competence in things at the job that 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 might have caught them off guard, but they were still like, well, the Carter we know is a good worker. Mm-hmm. And, you know, <laughs> but they're mm-hmm. still going to weigh it like, oh, what should we do? You know, we didn't know about right. this or something. So so it, it can still inhibit certainly what they're doing. And so um, I, I, for our listeners, could you tell us what Carter does do or has been doing to make a living since he left prison? Well, I I kind of don't feel like comfortable doing that honestly. I think it's oh, okay. but I will yeah, say well, then it, don't. I, what sorry. I will <laughs> say is it's it's not I mean it's a regular, you know, it was a minimum wage job and now it's a minimum wage job as a manager, so he's making more money. Oh, okay. If that makes sure. sense. Very yeah. good. Cool. And um let's see so one other thing that I didn't mention but that I, I think comes up in your writing is that in prison, while in prison, there were a lot of, uh, I guess you could say, frivolous rules um, that prisoners had to follow, and um, so it's hard to keep in line with those. And, and why did Carter sometimes break the rules, even when he was approaching a point where he was very close to being paroled? Well, I... I don't really have an answer for that. I I I think that it's so hard to live in a restricted environment like prison sure. that there really isn't a way not to break a rule here or there. I just think it's you know even if you're not a rule breaker kind of person or somebody who gets pleasure out of breaking rules. I think it's almost impossible not to do something that isn't going to anger someone because there are so many rules. And at a certain point, I think people ignore the things that they think they can get away with to some degree and because they are so controlled. And in a couple of situations with Carter, you know, he had tendonitis, he had pain, and, you know, there's a supplement called glucosamine chondroitin, um, which many people take over the, it's over the counter. It's not any kind of drug. It's just a supplement for to help your bones. And he'd heard about it, and he thought, well, maybe this would help my tendonitis. And he got some guys to get it for him. It was available in a canteen in the prison, but not in the one of the prisons he was at. So it was considered contraband um he got some extra pair of underpants they were considered contraband those things in prison you can get your parole taken away for you can get sent to solitary you can get all sorts of things for doing this kind of stuff that in it's not like he stole something he paid for it he just had extras extra he had stuff he wasn't supposed to have but you know how many of us could live in an environment for 20 years and not do something that we weren't supposed to do uh, you know i don't know i think it's i don't mean getting in fights and i don't mean bringing in drugs and i don't mean doing things that are really blatantly obviously illegal uh or if not illegal you know against a logical rule but something where you can't cross over this line or you can't sit on somebody's bed or you can't those are the kind of things that I think would drive a person batty really um, 
I mean, when I taught in prison, it drove me batty. I'll be honest, it's it's hard. And I wasn't even in there for more than two hours, three hours a week. Um, but every time I went in, I was aware that I was entering a world that it was just totally different from the world I live in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I guess... Um yeah, for our listeners, I guess um, as we're coming close to the close of the hour, I was going to say, just are there um, any other closing thoughts you kind of want to leave them with or things to think about? And also um, any places they can go for more information or to, for example, to order your book or, or find sure. out more about her story? Well, I have a website. First of all, it's www.jeantrounstein.com, and I have all the information about my book and uh, there, and I'm also on Twitter at Justice with Jean. So those are places people can find me. I I think um, one of the things I, I'd like to leave people with is this notion of that are we are any of us as bad as the worst thing we've ever done? Is that really how we would want to be judged by the worst thing that we'd ever done? And I think most people would probably say no. That's not who I am. I'm not that's that I'm much more than that. I'm yeah, I did this awful thing way back in X number of years ago, but you know, I, I don't do those that anymore. But you know, that that's what Carter has to live with. That's what a a, a child who often a child and I and it it could be anybody, but certainly kids who act in a an impulsive way um, live with having done this incredibly crazy, thoughtless thing, and they can never escape that. And that's, uh, you know, I feel as a, a person who can help um, do some of my own work on healing the harm in our society, I want to bring attention to how we need to help these kids heal too, as well as the families of people who they've harmed. Yeah, and I, I couldn't agree with that more. I, I think that's absolutely true. And, you know, and, uh, and a good point that you raised too. I mean, most of us, if, if we didn't get caught or the worst thing we did was something that wasn't quite as serious, then, you know, we get away with that. It is, doesn't become our identity for the rest of our lives. People don't identify us as, you know, mm-hmm. the person who did this or that at one time. Um, and so it probably isn't fair for us to identify other people by the worst thing they've done because that's only a, a small part of mm-hmm. the whole person. And you know, and there could be a hundred wonderful things they've done and it's unfortunate for somebody like Carter that, you know, people ask him not about how he bought his house but still want to ask him about his crime or, or other things like that. So, I mean, mm-hmm. um all of us as humans are certainly fallible and we've all made mistakes um, and and we don't want those mistakes to be what defines us. So I, mm-hmm. I think that's important for people to understand and to realize, especially when you're talking about something, you know, people that might have done something in a moment, in a heated moment or a moment of passion when they were also young and also weren't maybe um, fully aware of what they were doing or, or didn't have the capacity to handle mm-hmm. it in a different way or didn't choose to and, and that shouldn't necessarily define them 10, 20, 30 years later. So 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I just wanted to thank you so much for taking time out to uh, talk to us on the Real Fix Radio, and and um, and I hope you have a wonderful weekend. And I'll put up links to the book and stuff on our good. Page for thank you. Order it or check it out or check out the website and. And hopefully yeah. his story will be told. And, and that story, I think, um, of course, is not just his story, but it's a story of many um, people in our, in our country. So uh, uh, thank you again for joining us and hope you thank have a you, wonderful Keith. weekend as well. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Yeah, bye.